Welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. I'm your host, Dr. Derek Burgess. You know, what is God trying to tell me? And I always look back to that point because I really started leaning heavy on just what is he telling you and and, and feel it and go with it and just don't look back. And and I've been blessed because that has borne more fruit than I could ever imagine. Tonight we have Dr. Hicks, Dr. William Hicks, and welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Uh, Very excited to be here. I have been, uh, I'm always waiting with bated breath whenever each podcast episode drops. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, this is this is the podcast I didn't know I needed, you know, so it just lets me know that this is something preordained. You know, if you told me uh, or, you know, if I, if I told a friend that my orthopedic surgery med school uh, classmate is doing a podcast, you know, on life and leadership and in the black experience, you know, you may get a side eye. But, um, you know, boy, it, when you tune in, you, you know exactly how much this is uh, very necessary and, uh, you know, hats off for, for, for what you're doing. And I can't wait to be a part of it. Man, I really appreciate it. And uh, number one, thank you for supporting me since day one, you know. Yes, sir. That means a lot. So here's our formal part. So it's Dr. William Hicks, right? So affectionately- The second. The second. Yep. Because the first is, still, first is still hanging out. I hear you. Uh, affectionately known as BJ. So he's always been BJ since I've known him since uh, we met in 2002 at Howard yep. University, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So Dr. Hicks is a vascular neurologist, and we'll have him tell us exactly what that means later. Uh, but he received his undergraduate training from Morehouse, as you can see on the shirt. On the shirt, Morehouse <laughs> changed my life. <laughs> yes, sir. So tell us about your early childhood. Well, um, I would love to, uh, you know, to tell, tell a story that is unique to, to my own. Um, you know, I am born and raised in Columbus in a city that no one's ever heard of. It's a suburb of Columbus called Worthington. And this is a city that is predominantly white. And we were in a, a neighborhood that was a relatively new neighborhood and everyone in the neighborhood looked at our house as the the biggest house on the block and the most unique house and it was very unique uh in in that respect um so i was born and raised there and uh in 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 a lot of you know all throughout k through 12 uh, this was public school. I was often uh, the only black uh, person in the classroom uh, in an entire grade. Uh, often, um, it wasn't until fourth grade that I had a, a co-conspirator in, uh, in in my elementary school that that, that was a black male. Um, it wasn't until middle school that I had multiple uh, uh, black folks uh, in my grade. And um, my high school graduating class, we had under 10, and that's males and females. And this was a big school. This is a school of, you know, over roughly 2000 uh, uh, students. So, um, you know, it was, it was unique. I, I, I love school, I always did. Um, 
although it was a suburban predominantly white school, this was a, a, a tolerant community, a community that was, you know, well-meaning liberal, quote unquote, uh, probably thought itself as post-racial, dabbled a little bit in, you know, things like Black History Month initiatives. And we had a, we had a black, um, we had a black studies course in, in high school, which was, uh, you know, pretty profound for a school without too many black folks. And my experience was a pretty harmonious uh, uh, one, but it was likely because I was pretty popular um, and, and, I, and I did pretty well in athletics uh, and, and I was smart, you know, so, so you kind of, from, from a lot of different angles, they're, they're, I was able to, to, to make friends. Uh, I can't say the same for some of my other uh, colleagues or, you know, my other classmates that look like myself, but I could say that, you know, teachers and, and classmates and everyone treated me well. And, and I was, I was happy to, to, uh, to, to, to grow up uh, that way. My brother was uh, two years younger than me. So we kind of grew up together. My sister was five years older. So she kind of laid the, the foundation for, you know, uh, a student who was in National Honor Society, but, you know, still was doing well in scholastic uh, and, and, and other kind of, um, you know, athletic activities. So, uh, you know, that that's kind of how I grew up as far as uh, my, my, my area, my hometown. But thankfully, my parents were active in the community. And community, I mean, uh, the Black experience. So we weren't trapped in Worthington. Uh, we weren't trapped in a predominantly white space all the time. We were rooted in the church. My grandfather, who we might go into a little bit, um, had passed at a church here in town for 33 and a third years. So uh, our, our name um, uh, rang quite heavy in, in, in Columbus, uh, if you were a member of the Black community. And then my father, uh, being an oncologist in town, um, who, who worked uh, downtown, um, and, and you know, and, and my mother as well, being uh, quite quite the, uh, the the social individual who, who knew and loved uh, any and everyone, uh, we were a relatively well known family uh, in the black community. So we got experience not only in the suburban schools but also just living in existence in, in Columbus, uh, being. Uh, well-versed in the Black community. So we got the best of both worlds growing up, I felt. Sure. So you mentioned being a far minority in your school. Sure. No so question. Up in Alabama, you know, I was one of a few, but never the only one, like you said. And, you know, the especially in Alabama, you think about that with a more of a private school setting, but that's a public school, so that says a lot. Yep. No, and then no, no, also you no mentioned doubt. You mentioned that you had the house, right? Every neighborhood has that house and you yeah. had that house, right? And it, yeah. I'm sure it made it even more interesting that you were the only family with yes. that house, right? Did you yes. ever yes. feel any uh, repercussions for that? You know, we were known in, in, in town, you know, you know, again, not a lot of black folks in Worthington. And so then they would say, oh, do you know BJ Hicks or do you know Darren Hicks or do you know Shari Hicks? And they'd say, uh, maybe, no, they, they, they live in the, they live in that neighborhood with the house with the moat, you know, and everyone say, oh yeah, I heard, I heard you've got a, I heard you've got a moat, you know, cause we had a bridge walking up to our front door and it was, you know, it was very avant-garde for the time. 
and you know it was it was it was a one of one kind of uh you know house and it was an unmistakable house on the quarter block and a very audacious you know my my parents were my parents were like that you know they 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 shot for the moon um you know and they wanted to make a statement and they did so throughout my life you know in, in Worthington I was known as that kid with that house mm-hmm. um so so it, it it was it it was great you know like I I just I thought about uh you know just thinking back on, on on strange uh upbringing situations you know my my neighbor uh was uh my neighbor's father was an OBGYN and when he had his bar mitzvah, he asked my dad if he could take a picture in front of his sports car, you know, like the, these, this was my existence, you know, just, it just, that wasn't a, that, that was just how I grew up and, you know, just looking back on it, very strange. And, you know, like you said, I'm a creature of, of, of reading history and everything. And I think, and just keeping up with, with our community and, and what we often like to talk about, we don't often talk about the 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 wide breadth of upbringings that black folk have in this country and you could still turn out living in that way but still be grounded by faith grounded by service and grounded just by interacting with your own people and 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 not feel that you know once you've gotten that house you just forget everybody else and i think that's what i learned through osmosis uh thanks and in large part to who my parents were sure so let's stick there because you mentioned um being comfortable still being a black male right when i met you i never would have known about your upbringing of a few because number one you went to an hbcu um, and we can talk about why you chose morehouse later but you come from a generation or several generations of um educated black people will you speak to that I am proud to speak to the fact that my two paternal great grandfathers, my two paternal great grandfathers had graduate degrees, Dr. Burgess. Wow. Graduate degrees, great grandfathers. So, and then just going on down, my grandfather had, you know, a graduate degree in divinity. My great uncle had a graduate degree in education. My great aunts had the same thing. My great aunt graduated Howard Medical School in 1960. She was young because she graduated Southern University at the tender age of 16 years old. You know, my uncle, you know, became a prominent uh, preacher in this country. So he had not only his doctorate of divinity, but also his MBA, executive MBA. My, uh, my aunt uh, on my father's side uh, became an attorney and graduated from Ohio State University College of Law in the early 60s as a black female. Hello. You know, that was rare. And, right. and my father, uh, oh, by the way, having his is a medical degree as well as the baby of the family. And, you know, my, my mother's side of the family had a more, you know, I would say traditional uh, style of, of kind of a blue collar upbringing culminating in her get, being the first in her, uh, on her side of the street, um, getting a undergraduate degree at Ohio University in 1970. Um, and then obviously uh, having us kids. So, but it, it's just seeped in education. It's seeped in, um, 
kind of furthering your lifelong learning. You know, back in the in the good old day or bad old days, good old days, however you want to call it, uh, often in the deep south, uh, you know, they would say you got to preach or teach. You know, if you were an educated uh, a black individual, you know, you preach or teach to 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 to, to put it lightly. So that that was uh, really stressed upon uh, several generations in my family, and, and I'm, I'm more than proud to uh, to tout that because. Again, you know, we just need to hear more about uh, the the wide swath of experiences that that our folk have had in this country. It's been a struggle for uh, every single one of us, even those that have a family history of advanced degrees. But we we still have to uh, kind of not not let people um, misconstrue uh, that side of of who we are as a people. Absolutely. So, you know, that changes the dynamics, that changes the conversations of expectations, especially for a kid, right? When you look around and everyone that you've known has pretty much gone to college, gone to graduate school, gone to law school, gone to medical school, you're, I'd imagine you never had any, speak to as far as limiting thoughts about who you could be or what you could be as a kid. Yeah, it, it was, again, and, and this is why I mentor uh, uh, Derek. Uh, I'll call you Derek, Dr. Burgess. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, this this is why I mentor is because, you know, we've all heard the adage, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I had my eyes wide open to greatness. And, uh, you know, Black male doctors, Black female doctors were not a strange thing to me um, or, or any anyone in success or in a successful career path as a of uh, various generations in the in the black experience growing up uh, that was not a rare to me so how could i possibly think that i would be limited because my my the way I when I look at my parents I saw it when I look at their friends when they had a, when they had friends over oh you know hey this is Doctor so and so this is Doctor so and so this is you know this is Doctor so and so but he's a professor you know so he's a different kind of doctor okay so you're learning these things when you're learning your ABCs you know you know that this is a professor of jazz at Ohio State University and you know this is a federal judge and you know and and she is a a well-known philanthropist in town and you know like so and this is a surgeon you know so, so these are things that you didn't you didn't blink an eye at so i think what we often what this country uh tends to trap us with as a people is that you know black history month comes around and we hear about these phenomenal people these people that they write scores of, of novels and and and, and books about and you teach courses on because of just how amazing their life was. But we forget that there are people that may not have gotten that fanfare, but they were excellent in their own way. And they just, you know, did their thing and they may not have made a speech in front of the National Mall or they may not have been a uh, president of American, uh, you know, uh, Academy of Surgeons or American Cancer Society, but they were they were amazing, amazing people in their own right. And we tend to neglect them and only look at these amazing comets by saying, oh yeah, this person was, was great. This person was great. 
but everyone else is struggling. And that, that's that's not true. And uh, we, we've got to do better about, um, you know, giving the flowers to those who need it. I agree totally. I agree totally. So, you know, we often used to joke up with you about Jack and Jill, right? So we're in <laughs> Washington, D.C., and we're going out, and BJ always has friends. <laughs> So we're like, who is this person? Who is that person? Oh, it's just a, a Jack and Jill friend from home. It's a Jack and Jill friend from home. We're like, man, how in the world are you so far from Columbus? But every time we meet somebody who's in law school or whatever, it was a Jack and Jill friend. So McAllis and I, we're from Alabama. We don't even, we didn't really even know what Jack and Jill was at the time. My Jack and Jill experience. So uh, Chad Benson and I, shout out to Chad. Yes, sir. We were on the math team, right? So we went to a math team a national convention in high school, and we met someone. It was a young lady. I think she was from Tennessee, and um, some kind of way Jack and Jill come up came up. She probably <laughs> asked us where we in Jack and Jill as an <laughs> intro question, right? And probably saw the dust on our shoes and knew that we were <laughs> We were not, uh, our first name was definitely not Jack. So I think that was the first time I ever met someone that was in Jack and Jill, and I was probably a junior or senior in high school. And then I believe the next person I met in Jack and Jill was BJ Hicks. Hilarious. We had this circle of Jack and Jill friends, and I mean, they ran thick. So, you know, <laughs> and I didn't really even know at that time. So for the listeners that don't know, break down what Jack and Jill is. So Jack and Jill, um was created uh, way back when. I'm not going to go into two. I would give you the Reader's Digest version. Yeah. It, it, it was a group that was created once a large swath of Black folk who were successful began moving. And part of that was due to the Great Migration. Part of it was due to relaxed areas of kind of strict segregation and strict housing. Uh, strict redlining, where we as a people were starting to branch out into different parts of town. Whereas, you know, again, you, you'll hear people like your grandfather and, and boy, again, anyone who's listening who did not hear you and your grandfather on that podcast needs to do so immediately. Uh, I enjoyed every second of that. Uh, but, um, you know, those who speak to some of the older generations who will wax poetic about, you know, our quote unquote communities in town, which were redlined, which were we were kind of relegated to. So that's why your your orthopedic surgeon or you know your surgeon and your dentist and your preacher were next to you know everyone else in, in the community. That was because they everyone was entrenched uh, due to uh, legalized segregation through housing and, and redlining laws. But once that started to relax. And Black folks started living in different parts of town and going to these often private schools, but sometimes if they were integrating public schools, there is a strong concern by the, the parents, namely the mothers, because, you know, they run, you know, they still are, are, are the head of uh, most households. And they, they were concerned that they would lose their identity and their ability to interact with Black folks of their type, of their, of their, their style, of their type. So they wanted to make sure that they were still getting a black upbringing with kids who look like them and for better or for worse who may have had parents who had similar kind of backgrounds and that's where jack and jill kind of gets a bad rap 
because it's it in, in certain chapters it's a bit exclusive and a bit snooty and a bit disgusting quite frankly uh when, when it comes to that sort of stuff but basically that's what it's trying to do it's trying to make sure that you know the the kids in laurel or the kids in pittsburgh or the kids in columbus ohio or atlanta georgia or wherever they're not just stuck with their in their orbit of the Worthington Ohio's of the world where they're the only black kid in class and they feel like they are different and, and, and bizarre and just not, they don't feel quite comfortable in their own skin. Well, Jack and Jill is an ability, is the ability for those kind of kids to get together routinely and just be themselves and do kid-like activities together. So, it, kind of, it really branches out your network as a kid. You know, you don't have a car. So you end up befriending people that live in different parts of town, go to different schools. So then, you know, if, if you guys hook up, then you get to know their friends and they get to know your friends. So your birthday parties become intertwined. And so then your Jack and Jill friends get to meet your Worthington friends, for example. And, you know, it just becomes this thing where, as the, your years progress, if you're in it long enough, it just becomes like, this is your crew. You know, if we fast forward all of a sudden without any of us talking to each other. I mean, my my best friend growing up who was not named my brother was uh, a, a guy who was in my, uh, who my, my, my dad and his dad were, were frat brothers at Morehouse. And we both kind of knew we were going to Morehouse. So like that, that became a thing. We knew that's where we were going. But then other people in our Jack and Jill group went Spellman, um, and then others went elsewhere. But then just the way life worked, we always kind of hung around each other's orbit. So as we were growing in our careers and our, you know, kind of gr growing our educational um, prowess, we would, you know, kind of continue to interact with each other. And then that, that came to a head at some times in, in, in the DC spot. So, yeah, I mean, even when we were in Atlanta, you know, people were like, man, y'all deep in Columbus. It's right. like, no, actually we're deep in Jack and Jill. Yeah. And we kind of just navigated it down to the Atlanta University Center. Yeah. And uh, we just, we just uh, kept it moving. So it was a beautiful thing. You know, I, I, I mentioned that it's, it's not all that beautiful, you know, um, even for somebody who touts the, the positives, I can agree that there are some negatives we, that we talked about a little bit. And, um, you know, not everybody shares that same experience. I'll be the first one to tell you, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed mine and I've got lifelong friends as a result. I, I've got people that I, I literally consider family. Yeah, absolutely. So you just kind of broke my next question, which was how did you choose Morehouse? But you just kind of said you were legacy. So uh, talk about that and then tell us, you know, we've heard about the Xavier experience on Time Out with the Sports Doctor, but this would be the first introduction to Morehouse. So represent. That's why I had to rep. That's, how, that's why I had to represent the shirt. You know, I mean, I, I, I literally Xavier was introduced to me through y'all. I mean, I knew a little bit about it, but um, just kind of admiring what Xavier was doing on the medical side. But then I, I saw who Xavier was through yourself and, and Dr. McCallis Hogan and, and, and other members of, of Howard and, and your friends like Dr. Neil Lewis, who was on, who I've gotten to know and who I really enjoy, he and his lovely wife. So, um, you know, I, I was I was always, uh, you know, I learned a lot through you guys about what Howard was, but to me, I mean, it was Morehouse up and down. I mean, there's, it, it just, the sun rose and, su and the sunset with Morehouse, just because that's how my dad, 
my my father, uh, class class of seventy, and he was the first in our family to go through Morehouse. But as we grew up, we saw I saw my cousin graduate in eighty nine. I saw my other cousin, his brother, graduate in ninety one as the class president. I saw another cousin graduate in ninety five and become a lawyer. Um, I saw my sister graduate Spelman in 96. So, you know, the whole thing was just, it was a crescendo because you're going to that graduation, you're seeing the, you know, you're seeing Oprah give a, a graduation speech and drop $5 million in the early nineties, you know? So you're able to see kind of just how special the place is. And then when, when it's your time to be a senior, and your sister still knows some people who are still kind of uh, in, in, in classes there and they show you a great time and you're like, where else am I gonna go in this right. world? Like I'm in Atlanta, Georgia <laughs> and I'm at a place, exactly. So like, where do I sign? Um, so yeah, that, that, that's pretty much how it was for me. And again, it helped that, that uh, you know, a good friend of mine, I kind of knew was gonna be there already. And we were just, we just were, were thoroughly excited for it. Um, and, you, you know, obviously I applied to other places, but it, it just became silly. And I, I distinctly remember within like the first weekend or the first week, I was like, I cannot believe that I even applied at other places. Like yeah. this is I, like, like this is something that is, it, it must be in me because, yeah. you know, you can't tell me otherwise, you know, yeah. so, and I never look back and it's, it's been nothing but love ever since. Absolutely. So, you know, one reason why I started this platform is because when we meet successful people, no matter whether it's a physician, an athlete, an entertainer, whatever, you usually will identify them with their current state, right? So I see Dr. Hicks, and he is a prominent stroke doctor. You know, he grew up in the biggest house in his neighborhood. It's hard to identify. I might say, wow, it's always been a bed of roses for uh, BJ. Tell me something that you had to overcome know in your life to make it to where you are now that's a, that's a great question um i would say that when i was in medical school uh medical school was the hardest time in my life period before or since and i can't stress how important it was for you to, to have you to have dr mccall's hogan to have dr ray malvo and to have the, the the legions of other classmates to lean on, um, because you know I, I my parents got divorced right before step one of the boards, and I had never had a really really crushing personal situation like that. I mean, you know, we had had death in the family, but there were always somebody who was older, and you know, although they were prominent members of our family, you know, you, you kind of knew it was coming and, you know, you kind of would grieve like normal, but that literally was a, a train wreck to me. And it, it really um, it threw me off uh, for, for a while. And it was at the most inopportune time that you could possibly imagine. It was literally steps four, step one, but you know, you can't, obviously my parents didn't, uh, you know, you, you can't control that sort of thing. So, so that really was the moment where um, I got off the rails a little bit and I had to write myself and I had to say, okay, how, you know, like life happens, life is tough sometimes. And 
this was something that that they have to figure out. And this is not something that I have done. And it is not an opportune time for it to happen to me. But I can't, you know, like my like my late great uh, childhood pastor used to say, you can't throw a pity party. You know, you just can't, you know, pity parties are toxic and, you know, the human personality kind of gravitates toward it. You almost have like a magnetic uh, pull towards a pity party. If there's something that happened to you, it's really easy to just let go and just let, Oh, woe is me take over. And it took it took me to kind of know that and 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 be grounded in the fact that you know I, I I I this is an important part of my life I've got to get through this you know we will get through this as a family as painful as it is and, um, and you know we, we I got through it and and, and thankfully um, you know was able to start third year on time and uh, you know knew that I wanted to do neurology by that point and was able to find a, a residency that, that fit me like a glove. And, you know, from that point, I knew that uh, kind of my, my, my faith uh, can, can, can carry me through rough times like that. And, and I'm going to really rely on my, my experience, my background, but just you know, what God is, is trying to tell me in, in important pivots of my life. Uh, and, and I have really always looked, looked at that as, you know, whenever there's an important point, you know, what is God trying to tell me? And I always look back to that point because I really started leaning heavy on just what is he telling you and, and, and feel it and go with it and just don't look back. And, and I've been blessed because that has, born uh, more fruit than I could ever imagine. Well, number one, thank you for sharing that. And anyone that knows BJ know that you're definitely a creature of habit, right? So yes, like that can definitely rock you, you know, and we spent a lot of time. I mean, literally we were at either your apartment or yep. at our apartment week in and week out. And that's where we studied. Yep. That's where we yep. hung out. We did everything together. And you could always, you know, set your, your watch by BJ's schedule, you know, <laughs> He was the only person that really slept. You know, it's a test weekend. McAllister <laughs> was going to go to sleep, but he was going to wake up at three o'clock in the morning and just hit it. You know, but those flashcards. Yeah, but nine thirty, BJ is like, "All right, fellas, I got to get some sleep." So, you know, and speak to, and you always had, you know, your your lunch, your little brown bag, <laughs> with I don't know what was in a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich or whatever. But you know, you were a creature of habit. Speak to why you were yeah. so discipline like that you know it's it's funny because everybody jokes about that everyone that's ever known me that's who I am you know every stage of my life whether it's the 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 mothers of the elementary school kids I grew up with they they, they see me and they say oh I remember this and you know and and, and the, the teachers they knew at two o'clock you always had to eat you know and, and, and obviously classmates and in, in, in different walks of life and, and colleagues uh, and, and colleagues currently, you know, they know that I have my soup and salad for lunch every day. But uh, I do that because, um, you know, I'm a type one diabetic and I've been so since before I turned three years old. So, you know, that that's something that I almost forget uh, to bring up. And, you know, a lot of people lead with that because it is a pretty profound and it's an impactful 
condition. It's a it's a, a, a medical uh, condition that really augments who you are as a person and, and, and how you have to conduct your life. So living your entire life, again, before you turn three years old, you have to live on a schedule or else you will, you will suffer the consequences. So my mother, uh, who does not have a nursing or, or a doctorate or, or a medical background, was my nurse, primary care physician, whatever you want to call it. You know, my father was kind of the subspecialist and, you know, he handled my, uh, my insulin regimen for the bulk of my life uh, growing up. But my mother did all the day-to-day implementation and she instilled in me the importance of a schedule. Mm-hmm. schedule 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 and that was that was very helpful for uh, being a diabetic and I, I'll never forget I, it didn't that was just who I was and I didn't think it was a big deal until I became I, I got to Morehouse and my my roommate who is a basketball player he's now a a, a coach and a, and a, PE, a PE teacher in Atlanta and he he would just he, he, his jaw would drop. He said, I can't believe this. He said, my, one of my best friends is a type one diabetic. And he, I mean, he does everything wrong. Just I've been with you for like a week yeah. and he, he, you're doing things I didn't even know were important. He's like, I'm learning more about type one diabetes than I ever learned. I've known this guy for years. He's like, you know, this is, he's like, you got to meet him, man. You got to talk to him. And unfortunately, you know, he did not have, you know, I, I'm not going to go into his life, but um, he, it was not instilled in him or he did not want to hear the importance of such a regimen. And I knew that if you were going to be a type one diabetic and go into medical school, go in, be a pre-med, go into medical school, you know, take weird hours as a resident and be a stroke fellow and be a stroke attending where you work nights and weekends and you're up at, at, at odd hours, you, you have to be grounded in a great regimen of, of diet, of, of semblance of exercise, and of just a good sleep schedule. Um, and, and any neurologist will tell you that that is what the brain craves. So, um, so, so it was almost like preordained that I'd be a neurologist based off how I, how I live my life. Yeah. So, man, it's very fitting that you're sitting in a library, right? Because like <laughs> I touched on earlier, you are an avid reader. So, so let's say we have a text stream going between some of our uh, friends from medical school. We bring up a topic and we can pretty much set a clock and give BJ about <laughs> 15 to 30 seconds before he references <laughs> or backs up whatever topic we're discussing with a book. So how long have you been a reader like that? That's number one. And then number two, what are your top three books? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, I'll start with the first question. Uh, I, I've been a reader, and I've thought about this a lot recently. I have been an avid reader since the elementary school days. I, I would read, you know, off of the whatever the, the teacher would tell us, you know, maybe maybe she or he would give us a, a, a book to read, and I would like that author. So then I would go and figure out what else has this author read? Or, oh, this is a series? Oh, I've got to get the series. So then I would read that. Or, you know, I just always loved the library. And it's like, okay, I love mysteries. So let's go into mysteries. Oh, wow, this is great. And, you know, again, my parents instilled in me, my, my, my family legacy instilled in me the importance of, of being unapologetically Black. So, you know, I, I read Black 
uh, folk tales. I read black nonfiction. I read black fiction uh, as as uh, as a child. I love sports, so I love reading about sports. I became a sports almanac. You know, people still think I'm some whiz kid when it comes to sports trivia because I would read literally. I would read the sports almanacs um, because I just found the history of sports and the history of black athletes in the 20th century just fascinating because you've got the beautiful blend of sport and race and society um, all mixed together. So it's just the perfect blend of, of reading material. I became a pre-med and unlike, you know, yourself and, and, and well, you kind of mentioned a little bit, but, you know, I, I, I um, you know, <laughs> pre-med and medical school, that took a lot of my time. So that, um, you know, if, if, I, if I was going to church and doing that and having some semblance of a, of a life outside of these things, um, I had to put the book addiction down for that amount of time. Then came residency and fellowship where you really wanted to show your stuff and, and be as great as possible so you can be primed for a, an excellent career in medicine. So I kind of had to put that uh, book addiction aside for a long time. And then in the past, I'd say uh, eight years or so, I, I kind of got back into it. I love nonfiction. I love uh, stories of us, um, stories of the Black experience. Um, uh, I think we're in a renaissance as far as uh, Black authors in the nonfiction space and the fiction space. So I just dive right in and, um, you know, I, I just love... Uh, I, I am on vacation when I'm reading a book. You know, I can be out in my backyard and I am just fine in sunny Columbus, Ohio, uh, in the heat of, in the heart of a pandemic. And I can be in a world where I am, I am fulfilled. You know, I've got my family with me. I've got my, my German shepherd and uh, I've got my book and I'm good. And that's excellent because if you had a book addiction, I had a book allergy. And <laughs> Now you mentioned now you mentioned three books. Yeah, now that's going to be very very difficult. I, you know, because if you if you ask for three, you know, I can give you thirty. Exactly. Um, because you're in Mississippi. All right. I I will, um, you know, I will, I'll put out two um, from Mississippi, and uh, you know, one is uh, entitled Heavy. Oh. Um, Yes, uh, by Kiesi uh, Lehman, um, and that is a memoir. And um, you'll never, you've never read a memoir like it, and you never will. And um, he's now a, a professor of creative writing at the University of Mississippi, and um, he's one of the best creative writers in this country. He actually played; he was a basketball player, and he played for one of my old basketball coaches, who's a legend here in Ohio. He played at Oberlin. Uh, Oberlin University uh, here in Ohio, but um, a brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, a, a fiction uh, writer is uh, Jasmine Ward, uh, Sing Unburied Sing. Um, and then she also has another book called Salvage the Bones. Those are phenomenal. Uh, uh, that, those are, she's a phenomenal fiction writer. Um, and so, and then the third one I will say uh, is, um, the uh, Isabel Werkelson, everybody knows her for the movie cat or for the book cast. Everybody talks about cast, but I will tell you, 
Cast is not the book I'm talking about. The book I'm talking about is her first book, which is called Warmth of Other Sons, S-U-N-S. And, you know, my father doesn't, he knows I'm a book nerd, but he doesn't recommend a lot of books to me. He, He recommended, I'd say, one book in the past 10, 15 years, and it was that one after it was, after it came out. And I just didn't really pay it much mind until finally I decided to read it. And I read it on a plane ride. I read the bulk of it on a plane ride. It is, it, it encapsulates the great migration in a way that no one's ever done so. And I'm just fascinated with that topic because it also talks on another topic that I love, which is the black experience. It is not talked about in the headlines. Brilliant, strong black people that built this foundation, built who we are as a people and they do not get fanfare for it. And the the trauma that they fled in the deep South in the Jim Crow era um, and trying to make a way out of no way uh, in the New York area in the Chicago area and in the Los Angeles area, warmth of other suns. It is, it is such a a perfect book. I I, I can't, I I can go on and on. And of course I can mention about a couple dozen others, but I'll, I'll leave you with those. And I knew you wouldn't disappoint. So I'll put those uh, books in the show notes. So don't worry, everyone. You didn't get the Mississippi ones because sh- shout out, shout out to those two. They are brilliant. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm so big was, fans. And I, I love the way that you were able to say, oh, since you're from Mississippi, since that's where you're recording, let me come to your hometown. Man, that's, that's right. Significant. All right. So uh, let's talk about your career. So you are a vascular neurologist. Uh, first, tell us what that means. And You've been doing, you know, with the pandemic, we were introduced to most of the world was introduced to telemedicine, but that is a part of your daily life. So speak to us about that. Sure. So a vascular neurologist is a neurologist who focuses primarily on conditions that involve the blood vessels that feed the brain. And the most common problem that 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 blood vessel issues in the brain cause is stroke. Stroke is where either you lose blood flow, where you lose blood flow, either from a blockage in the brain, in a blood vessel in the brain, or the blood vessel bursts. And either way, however way that that, that happens, you have a sudden episode where you have what's called focal neurological deficits. So you have signs and symptoms worrisome for a stroke, and they can be devastating. They can also be subtle. So there's a acronym that we talk and we try to tell all our patients about or in, in the community at large, it's be fast. So B is for if balance, if your balance suddenly goes off. And I mean like a light, you know, like a, someone turns off a light and then all of a sudden your balance is off, staggering like you're drunk. E is for eyes. If you suddenly lose vision out of one part of the visual field or the, you, the left side of your world, you can't see very well suddenly or if you lose vision out of one eye completely, and this is usually painless. So that's the B part. The F is for if you if your face droops suddenly, all of a sudden it looks like your face is drawn down, can't explain it. Uh, a is for arm or leg drift. So put your hold your arm out and, you, and it's just dropping down or it's flopping down, your leg is dragging, or there's just a, a drop and, and it's just not as strong as the other side. That's a telltale syndrome. Um, S is for uh, speech. If your speech suddenly changes, you're suddenly slurring your words for no good reason, 
or if you suddenly you cannot get your words out the way you'd like, or if you suddenly have nonsensical speech, like a word salad, you know, just words are just jumbled together that aren't making any sense. And then the T in be fast is time. It's time to dial 911. It's not time to call your friend. It's not time to call Google. It's not time to call Dr. Burgess because he's a doc in town and, and, you know, he's a community leader. No, it's time to dial 911 and let the medics take you to the hospital as soon as possible because there are stroke specialists that are there ready to treat you because this is a devastating thing. It's the number one cause of disability in this world and in this country. And it's the, um, it's the, uh, the fifth leading cause of death in this country. And that used to be the third leading cause of death when we were in medical school. So the treatment that we have uh, been able to uh, provide to patients since we were in medical school has been nothing short of revolutionary. And it's keeping people alive, alive and, and thriving because we're getting to patients early and we're able to identify what type of stroke uh, it is and how can we best treat it. And, um, you know, I am, I'm really, uh, I'm, I pinch myself so often that I have found a career, not unlike yourself, where it has fit me to a T. Now, unlike yourself and, and Dr. Hogan, I, this wasn't a preordained thing from the high school years, but it, it really became a, a culmination of, of who I am as a person and who, how I wanted to treat patients in their, in their greatest need and just what really gets me going at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and, and that's, that's neuroscience and that's uh, stroke care. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's been my, my, the, what we've able to, to do here locally uh, has been nothing short of extraordinary and I'm very excited about it. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. So everyone, you know, what you don't realize is what he just told you is the way to save a life. So for medical students and residents, if you know what Be Fast is, you're going to shine on awards. You're going to look like a star student on rounds. Um, but for everyone else, you can save a life by going by that um, acronym that he gave, Be Fast. And because the golden hour, uh, I don't know if you mentioned the golden hour, but speak to yeah. that. Oh, yes. So there is treatment that we give for patients having strokes. And the kind of the beginning of the treatment is clot busting medication. We call them thrombolytics. And there's a few now, but the most common one is called TPA. TPA has been around since the mid nineties, but we're now really revving up our ability to give it really quickly. And it's a very, very time dependent medication. Unlike most any other medication that we have. I mean, you know, traumatic surgeries are very time dependent, of course, but as far as other medications are concerned, really what we say in the business is time lost is brain lost. So if we give TPA to patients within an hour of their stroke symptoms, the likelihood that they walk out of the hospital increases several times over. If we give it towards the end where, you know, it, it's still... We can still give it, but you know you really lose the bang for the buck. You're not going to get the same um, great outcome more than likely. So we in the stroke community, at least those of us who truly care about moving the proverbial needle for stroke care, we are 
laser focused on how do we deliver this medication as fast as possible. And I chose a fellowship program in Houston, Texas that really had been training stroke neurologists in this way of thinking since we were born, you know, late 70s, early 80s. So there was a revolutionary concept that came to the United States in 2014, which is a mobile stroke treatment unit, which is an ambulance that can go around a city or municipality and be a stroke only ambulance where there's a CT scan, which is a CAT scan to look at your brain, that if you're having a stroke, the mobile stroke treatment unit could get to the bedside of the patient, get to the, the, where the patient's living, where the patient's having their stroke, evaluate them, put them in the scanner, make sure that their CT scan is without any bleeding. And then with telemedicine technology, as you referred to, I'm able to see them on the camera and discern that, yes, this truly is a stroke and I can okay the delivery of this medicine. And as more and more studies are coming out about this uh, mobile stroke treatment option, we're finding that we're giving this medicine within that golden hour, which is the first hour of the stroke, about a third of the time. So about a third of the, of the patients that we're treating in the mobile stroke treatment unit are getting it within an hour of their stroke symptoms. Conventional emergency room stroke care, that happens about 3% of the time or so. And so we were extremely excited. Um, you know, the brainchild of, of the mobile stroke treatment unit in Columbus uh, was what I based a, a bulk of my career on at this point. And after several years of, uh, of medical politics, I should say, um, we got a mobile stroke treatment unit in Columbus, Ohio, uh, to provide this care. And we're now in year two of, of service. Um, so we, we couldn't be prouder. And, 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 and we are seeing similar numbers of treatment within that first hour for stroke patients. And we all we want to do is continue to spread this treatment availability. So all cities uh, will, will be a part of it in the future. And that's awesome. That's very awesome. All right. So on timeout with the sports doctor, this is your final timeout, right? So generally, I will ask you for some advice, but I've already got the book titles. So tonight <laughs> we got a little trivia for you. And oh Lord! Yeah, man, you you have so many facts in your head. We wanted to see, along with myself, along with uh, Dr. Malvo and Dr. Charles Black, they gave me some insights <laughs> yes. to try to stump you on the show. <laughs> Our first topic. Uh, let's see, where we start? Let's start with the lovely state of Ohio. Who was the first black elected official in Ohio? That's uh, Mayor Stokes. Mayor Stokes, what year was that? Uh, boy, early 60s. Um, there's, this, there's a library named after him at HUCM, Howard University College of Medicine, Louis Stokes. 63? Uh, okay, all right. So... The answer I was given was George Washington Williams. Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I would have missed that. I, yeah. Okay, well, I'm talking about, well, Louis Stokes was the mayor, first first mayor of a major U.S. city, but definitely you. in Cleveland. Hey, All close right. enough, close enough. Yeah, I'll count yeah there, there's some trivia, there's some trivia when I lost, you know, I'll still go give you some more All trivia. right, <laughs> still had a comeback. 
All right, so your beloved Simpsons, right? Who did Dr. Nick represent on the show? Which uh, real life doctor did Dr. Nick represent? Real life doctor? Well, his name was Dr. Nick Riviera and he was hilarious. Um, and a, a random thing was he went to uh, what was called Hollywood Upstairs Medical College, which was also HUCM, which was a little sad because Howard was HUCM as well. Um, uh, but I don't know the the real doctor. Um, that that's uh, I I don't know if I didn't, I didn't even know there was a real uh, doctor for Doctor Dick Riviera. But um, so, so per. Uh, Dr. Malvo, it was that it was uh, Dr. George Nicopolis. Wow! See, I, I, this is this is deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elvis Presley's doctor. Oh, get out of here! Yeah. Now, see, yeah. I've never heard that. I'm, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to double check that now. Yeah, yeah. Double oh, check. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I he definitely went to Howard Hollywood Upstairs Medical College. You know. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that's good enough. That's good enough. Exactly. All right. So what about um, who is Matt Groening? So Matt Groening created The Simpsons, yes. um, you know, and uh, yeah, so his, his name is, is synonymous with it. Um, I will say that uh, I th there are certain shows and movies that I don't get the opportunity to watch as much anymore, but they're just in my head and Simpsons cannot get out of my head. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, it's, it's just the, 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 the comedy, you know, it's, it's still on. And I mean, I haven't watched the Simpsons episode, like that, that an active Simpsons episode in forever, but um, I would say from episode from season three to like season 12, I mean, yeah. th those are, those are, that's quality television. Now you're all about the Simpsons. All exactly. Right, so I have some HBCU questions. Uh, okay. What was the name of the first HBCU lacrosse team? <laughs> oh man, first HBCU lacrosse. Um, it would have to be in the East Coast. All right. How Howard Howard does not did I don't think it was Howard. So it's somewhere I would say like Bowie or uh, Morgan or. Um, so, cause Maryland's heavy on lacrosse. So, um, who, what's another big one in Maryland? I would say Bowie, I would say Bowie state or, or Morgan. Wow. All right. Even when he didn't know the answer by process of elimination, Morgan state, 1975. Nice. Nice. Name was the black bears. Man, I love it. Person. I don't know how you pull that one out. Well, because, you know, again, when you're from the mean streets of Worthington and, and you yeah. know, a lot of people play lacrosse, you kind of know where lacrosse is kind of birthed. It's a yeah. big East Coast uh, sport. And by the way, it's a sport that that, that our people uh, should be able to dominate. And as you know, as we know, Jim Brown was a yeah. arguably the, the the greatest lacrosse player in, in the history of college lacrosse. Um, and oh, by the way, he just happened to win the Heisman Trophy and or sorry, he didn't win the Heisman Trophy because uh, Paul Horning won it from Notre Dame. But, um, you know, he ended up being arguably the greatest running back of all time for the Cleveland football Browns. But um, but yeah, it's a it's, it's a great sport, um, you know, but we it just hasn't caught caught on. It's been very regional. So 
you know, I, I always knew that Maryland, it's really a hotbed for uh, for lacrosse. So yeah, no, that was great. We can pull that one through. All right, I'm trying. So I'm trying. Yeah, y'all got me sweating, man. I mean, this yeah. is this ain't, I mean, you know, these ain't layups, man. These are like yeah. half court heaves. Hey, well, we knew that you you know, right? We knew we had to challenge you. So last yeah, one, make friendship a hardship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what is the sister institution of Hampton University? Ooh. Sister institution of Hampton University. And I can um, give you a hint. You say you can? I can give you a hint. Yes, please give me a hint. All right, so the relationship is that this person graduated from one university and founded another university. Oh, so that's Tuskegee. Because, um, yeah, because because um, uh, Booker T. Washington uh, graduated from the Hampton Institute, as it was first called, and that's why he went to Tuskegee to create a, a similar school in the Deep South, and he used the Institute name uh, as an homage to to Hampton. Um, so for those of us who have any ties to Howard, um, the yeah. Howard underground folk, they take that Institute part and they just stick it in the face of anyone who's a Hampton grad, but, you know, shout out to my brother-in-law who graduated Hampton and, uh, I, I, I never used the Institute moniker, but I do have to know that that's part of the history. So that was a, that was a cool little trademark that that I was proud to to pull out. Thank you for the uh for the hit. That was that was major. Yes, sir. Well, that's it, man. So, you know, even Woo. the questions that you had no clue by process of elimination, when you're taking a test by process yeah. of elimination, you can still get an answer, especially yeah, I got me. Plus, right. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 I got me sweating. It, it is Monday, isn't it? See, right, we, right, we right. have our we had, we had our tests on Mondays, you know. Yeah, so that's, you, that's you, you got me sweating out on Monday. Yeah, right. That's your one. You got you got four hours to Go out and enjoy life and reset for Tuesday. Then get right back at Tuesday's right. election. Lord That's have mercy. Absolutely right. Well, BJ, man, it has been a pleasure to have you on tonight, and I really thank you for all the pearls that you shared with us, for the knowledge, you know, even sharing your personal experience about things in your life that you know that you experienced and that brought you trouble and that really defined you for who you are now. So I really appreciate everything you're doing, you know, for our community, for the culture. Continue to be you, man. I appreciate it. Well, I, I thank you. And again, this is a forum that uh, I think we we all didn't know we needed. But, um, you know, the Lord speaks through you by, by, by doing this for us and for anyone that's got two ears that is is, is willing to, to learn about uh, the, the, the movers and shakers uh, in, in this great country of ours that have been blessed to, to know you, Derek. And, um, you know, I am very uh, proud uh, to consider you a, a friend and um, a lifelong one at that. And um, any friend of yours is a friend of mine, and I'm glad to be a part of the show. Straight up. I appreciate it. Let's continue to grow together. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episodes. Until later, peace.